Welcome to the most absurd podcast episode imaginable. That's right, the most absurd. This is Mike Grimes, and I'm here with Pat Abendroth. And today we're going to be discussing <laughs> why Christians should interpret the Bible like Christians. This has already sounded like an absurd podcast. It is an absurd podcast you're because conf- I'm not Mike Grimes. You're confused. I'm Pat Abendroth. You're confused. You start it going. I'm Mike Grimes. I am here with Pat Abendroth today. And we are going to have an absurd episode. Absolutely. We're going to talk about why Christians should interpret the Bible like Christians. Wait a minute. Did you misstate that? That doesn't no. even seem, seem to make sense. It's at, You said it first. I'm going to say it again. This is an absurd episode because we're going to talk about why Christians should interpret the Bible like Christians. Why, all, why in the world would we need to talk about this? We need to talk about this because there are actually Christian leaders, Christian theologians, who say that Christians shouldn't interpret the Bible like Christians. That's insane. They say that the Bible is not a Christian book, mm-hmm. in particular the Old Testament, but to say the Bible is not a Christian book is bizarro world, insane. And with that, they say that we're therefore not to interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way. Wow. Where, where does this bizarre notion come from? It definitely doesn't come from ordinary Christians. It doesn't come yeah. from the pew. Because if you go up to someone and say, ask a normal Christian, is the Bible a Christian book? They're going to look at you like you're crazy. Uh, yeah. uh, is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> is the Son hot? Of course the Bible's a Christian book. It definitely doesn't come from the pew, but it comes from Bible colleges, comes from seminaries, comes from Christian universities, comes from even evangelical textbooks, strangely enough. But that's not its origin. It actually comes from somewhere else. And that somewhere else would be, it comes from the Enlightenment. Hmm. What about the Enlightenment would cause this kind of problem? I thought the Enlightenment was good. I think the Enlightenment is good in so many ways. A lot of great things happened in Europe in the 18th century, but with it came naturalism. Hmm. And to to the degree that naturalism affects Christianity, it's bad because Christianity is, by definition, supernatural. So as Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's word, so it's inspired. There's one ultimate divine author, and naturalism would would reject that. Christians believe in God. We believe that he's all-powerful, all-wise, has a purpose, has a plan. The plan centers on his son, redemption through his blood, these sorts of things. Christians affirm these things, but to the degree that we sign up for interpreting the Bible uh, so many times in class and from textbooks were taught in essence to interpret the Bible like post-enlightenment people, Mm. like naturalists, like people who don't believe that there is one divine author, that God, if there is a God, doesn't have a particular plan that centers on his son throughout human history. So are you saying that our hermeneutics, Christians, when they're reading the Bible, sometimes resemble unbelievers more than they resemble believers? Typically, I don't think that would be the case unless we pay good money at a seminary or a Bible <laughs> college or for some sort of class. Okay, and we don't realize that we're being taught now by the quote-unquote experts hmm. how to interpret the Bible uh, in a non-Christian way. Right. <laughs> and so it's pretty strange. I'm, I'm thankful for a couple of books uh, that I have before me here that have been written in recent days that I call I call whistleblowing books, mm. uh, and that maybe sounds too negative, but they are books written to remind the Christian church that before the Enlightenment, Christians, by and large, uh, interpreted the Bible as a supernatural book with a divine author, mm. and so therefore it all fit together, and this God, uh, this divine author had a plan and a purpose that didn't start in Bethlehem, yeah. uh, that it was before the foundation of the world. 
And so a book like this one here called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, subtitle Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis, Mm. it's by Craig Carter, really got me thinking and was a bit of a shocker in a good sense. Also, Matthew Barrett has a book that uh, did the same sort of thing for me, and it's called Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel. That's great. Those are good resources. And, you know, I think it is important that you have been emphasizing that this is not something new we're proposing here, and this is not a change in hermeneutics we're advocating for, but more of a return to a pre-enlightenment hermeneutic. This is saying, hey, things have straight off course here. We need to be aware of these things, whistleblow, flags up, alarms blaring. Let's make a return back to a pre-enlightenment hermeneutic. Yes, absolutely. So when we say things or we hear people say things like, don't interpret the Old Testament in the light of the new, well, that that's hermeneutics of liberalism. Hmm. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a modern kind of thing, not a pre-modern thing. So we are on the wrong side of history yeah. when we don't read, interpret, read and interpret the Bible as a book that's divinely inspired with an orchestrating God behind all of the human authors. Yeah. So I think today what we want to do is we want to look at five biblical reasons, five biblical reasons for being Christ-centered in the way that we interpret Scripture, in the way we're teaching Scripture, and how we're preaching. We want to be Christ-centered, and so we're going to look at five biblical reasons. And the first one we're going to do is what I'll call the eternal purpose. And the eternal purpose comes from what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. And so we're going to look at that. But what I mean by eternal purpose, the eternal purpose, is that God, before time began, had a purpose, had a decree, and it's going to center upon Christ. And if that's the case, then it would only make sense to read history, certainly biblical history, as reflecting the eternal purpose, which centers upon Christ. So Ephesians 3.11 says this, referring back to the gospel work of Christ and all of its grandeur and all of its work, this was according to, here we go, the eternal purpose that he has realized in random acts of history. (laughs) No, uh, that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there is an eternal purpose. It's called the eternal purpose, and that is realized in Christ. So we, we have it on good authority, as I say way too often, that there actually is an eternal purpose, and it is Christ-centered. And so it would only make sense for us to look at history, therefore, human history, in, in a Christ-centered way. So would a naturalist deny the possibility that there even is an eternal purpose? Absolutely. So here we are pretending like we're naturalists when we don't read human history in a Christ-centered way, yeah. which doesn't make sense because no, no Christian is actually a naturalist. Right, yeah. So thus our absurd podcast right. episode, right. why Christians should read the Bible like Christians. Complementing Ephesians 3 would be Ephesians 1, where we read in verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So there is something that is before time begins as we know it, which again, no naturalist could affirm, uh, in love he predestined us, that wouldn't fit with naturalism either, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, there it is, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
So this purpose of his will, this eternal purpose, is all about redemption through the blood of Christ. Verse 9 goes on to say, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan similar to purpose, for the fullness of time to unite all things, so it's universal in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Absolutely amazing. And then in verse 11, it also is really important what it says there regarding this conversation. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Hmm. So let's make sure we emphasize the fact that this God not only has a decree, not only has a purpose, but he works all things after the counsel of his will. So everything that is happening in all of human history, that includes Old Testament human history, is according to the plan. And so absolutely, if the plan culminates in Christ and redemption through his blood, I'm going to pay attention to all of human history as to how that's leading us there, right? how it's unfolding, how it's anticipating. Everything somehow is designed to center around Christ. Thus, it's Christ-centered. You know, as you're reading through those Ephesian passages, it just, it just made me uh, think of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, where it's talking about Christ, the mediator. And in chapter 8, I'm going to read this. It says, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man. And I just think if we read about God's eternal purpose in his word, how could we deny that as we read through the scriptures, there's this unfolding of God's purpose and plan? I mean, it just, it, it is bizarre world. It is bizarre world. And how could we deny this? It doesn't make sense. And what really doesn't make sense is Bible believing Christians who believe in supernatural things, somehow checking their supernaturalism at the door and saying, let's pretend like we're un- unbelievers. Hmm. It just doesn't make any sense at all. There is an eternal decree. It centers upon Christ. It's pre-Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I'm going to read Genesis 1 and following as if God had a plan and it's unfolding and leading us eventually to the incarnation and the work of Jesus. Right. Ready going on our next one? Let's go to the next one. Okay, let's look at our next reason for interpreting the Bible like Christians, and that is typology. Typology. Did you ever take typing class? Or, or I did. What, I did? took typing class. With typewriters or what? We had computers then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that old. I took typing class, and then I, I was so terrible at it that I dropped it, and I took a racket sports. <laughs> so I had to learn to type later in life. But anyway, we digress. So we do need to talk about typology. And by typology, we're talking about those things that come before the incarnation that are shadows, that are copies, the Bible says. Maybe it helps our listeners to think in terms of foreshadowing. They're looking ahead. Things like the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, priests, animal sacrifice. These are preparatory. They're in anticipation of the incarnate work of Christ. So they're looking forward to something else. They're not the thing. That's a good way to put it. Just like shadows, uh, they tell us something's about to come, but they're not the actual thing. They're telling us something that is, is about to come. So if we look at Hebrews chapter 8 and then 9 and then Colossians 2, it would be a good sampling of the Bible itself. So we have it on good authority, as I always like to say, um, telling us about types 
And so that will cause me to read the Old Testament knowing that there are types and shadows that are designed to lead me to Christ. Mm. So they are Christ-centered in that sense because they're Christ in anticipation, if you will. So Hebrews 8, 5 says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So we have copies of things. So in the old covenant world, in the old Testament world, we're looking forward to something else. These are not end games in and of themselves. Right. Hebrews 9, then, if we turn there, says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So there are heavenly realities, eternal realities, and they're shown to us uh, in shadows and types and copies in the Old Testament world. Mm -hmm. And they're reflecting something eternal, right? Right, yeah. Uh, But they're also looking forward to something eternal coming. Uh, And we know that to be Jesus Christ. Colossians is also an important one. I reference it again and again. Colossians 2.17 says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when I read the Old Testament, I look for those things that are anticipating Christ. I'm reading the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. I'm not pretending like he's already come. I'm not pretending like there's no such thing as the incarnation, but these things are designed to move human history forward in anticipation. The substance belongs to Christ. The substance would not be with the types and shadows. And sometimes we get this wrong in our thinking. Uh, If you ask someone what's more real, the physical tabernacle in the Old Testament or Christ. Mm. Well, they, they maybe haven't thought about it before. Sure. It's good to think in terms of, well, both are real, but the substance, the, the end game, the, the most real thing of all, if you will, is Christ. Yeah. Now, if you don't believe in one divine author who's sovereignly directing human history toward a desired end, which would be redemption in Christ, well, then typology would not be legitimate. Right. Uh, you, you, the, all of this is tied to a, a, a hermeneutic that is not corrupted by naturalism. So we have to keep that in mind. And sometimes people really are down on typology because perhaps it could be abused and people, uh, you know, are going to turn it into allegory. Yeah. I think that's the biggest complaint I hear sometimes is that, hey, you're just looking for Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. He's not there. And you're just looking for ways to add him in. And I think that could be a problem, right? Yeah, if if it could could get there. Let's not do allegory. Let's not find Christ under every rock and in every piece of wood. Let's not find the cross. Right. But those are straw man arguments if if they're designed to be against typology. Yeah. So I do read the Old Testament believing God is sovereign, has a plan, has a purpose to go back to Ephesians 3. Mm -hmm. And so we can look for these things that are in anticipation. So there is a David, but there's a greater David who would be a son of David. And so all of that, again, is supernatural. It's designed to be this way. What we don't want to do is bow at the feet of the naturalists to have them teach us how to interpret the Bible. We want to be on the side of the way Christians have done this throughout the ages. Right. Well, let's look at a third reason for interpreting the Bible like Christians. And a third reason is inspiration. Inspire me, Pat, about inspiration. Wah, 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 wah. (laughs) 
So first we should point out the obvious, and that is that a naturalist wouldn't affirm inspiration, whereas Bible-believing Christians do. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, so divine origin. Not only that, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Two really important texts that all Christians I know believe. Yeah. But those texts help us to remember that we should interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way, or we can interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way, because even though we have all kinds of human authors writing at different times, different places, different personalities, different vocabularies, don't interpret the Bible like a naturalist who only emphasizes those things. That would be post-enlightenment hermeneutics. Remember, there is one divine author. Yeah standing behind it all, orchestrating the whole thing. And so we have to keep this in mind when we're interpreting the Bible. So many times I've been taught in books and through teachers that we have to pay attention to authorial intent, yeah, which is really good and really good. important. I'm all about seeing that John has a different vocabulary than Peter has, right. different than Paul has. Uh, and we should pay attention to those things. But what we can't do is lose our Christian minds <laughs> and forget that there's one divine author right. orchestrating. So if all we had were human author, which is what theological liberals will tell us, then how could it be Christ-centered? How yeah. could they all be on the same page? Right. Well, they really couldn't. But if there is one divine author, Old Testament, New Testament, there is a decree, mm-hmm. there is an eternal purpose, somehow every text is leading us toward Christ or finding fulfillment in Christ. Inspiration is the slam dunk when it comes to all of this. Right, absolutely. So therefore, it's okay then to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, just as we read the new in light of the old, right? Absolutely. That is scandalous, however, in some circles. (laughs) Uh, But I would affirm that wholeheartedly. I can read the old in light of the new, just like I read the new in light of the old, there's one divine author controlling yeah. the whole thing. Why wouldn't I want to yeah. do that? It just makes complete sense that you would want to do that if you acknowledge that there's a God with an eternal purpose, a decree, a sovereign decree, that you would want to see that unfolding throughout Scripture rather than piecemealing things together. And Mike, this is how Christians have thought about the Bible. Yeah. This is why we keep talking about the, the, the post-Enlightenment hermeneutic. Uh, that's where that comes from. Oh, no, don't read the old in light of the new. Well... Christians have always done that, at least until they started acting like theological liberals. Now, it does create problems because if we do it that way, then all of a sudden what we read in the Old Testament, well, those are in anticipation. Those are types and shadows. Uh, Those aren't the end game, and that might mess up your theology. Uh, Your theology maybe isn't Christ-centered, and now you have a problem. But I think we should join the rest of Christians throughout Christian history and say, indeed, the Bible is a Christian book. Yep. Uh, inspiration leads us there because we have one divine author with a decree yep. and a plan. So let's move on to our fourth reason, our next reason to interpret the Bible like Christians, and that is Jesus and his apostles. Jesus and his apostles, they would read the Bible this way. So we would want to do that too, right? Well, you have to know, Mike, that you're not Jesus and you're not an apostle, oh, well. so it's off off limits. So right. you should not read the old in light of the new, or at least that's what we're told. Yeah. Which I think most people 
would say, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, where can we go? I asked this to someone recently, a pretty new Christian. I said, where do you think we can go in the Bible and find perfect, inspired interpretation of the Old Testament? Mm. And thankfully, this man said, well, we can turn to Jesus. Yeah. We can turn to the New Testament. And I was thankful that his mind hadn't been corrupted yeah. yet by naturalism. Yeah. So Jesus says things like this. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Yeah. So John chapter 5, verse 46 is low-lying fruit. Jesus is affirming that Moses wrote of him. And I suppose it begs the question, in what sense? Hmm. Well, maybe there are explicit prophecies, or we could also say Moses was writing of Jesus, certainly in a typological sense. Hmm. Things are looking forward to Christ. That's where history is going. Uh, again, we have it on good authority in light of Hebrews. Yeah. Another one I think of when you mention that, uh, coming in Luke 24, a lot of people think of this passage when you talk about this with them. Uh, it's in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't think it gets much, much clearer than that. That is super clear. I think you have to work hard and try to be a scholar to make it mean something that it obviously says. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to do that, so <laughs> I'm going to go with what it says. We're going to go with the great tradition, if you will. Yeah. Colossians 1 is also helpful because, and I, and I haven't thought about this passage in this regard until lately. I'm kind of late to the party. I'm sure others have, but it's really impressive. Uh, it says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created. It's talking about Christ mm -hmm. in, and, and so even that alone causes me to say, so, you know, he, he, he didn't just show up one day in Bethlehem. Right. Right. <laughs> so he wasn't, he wasn't late to the party for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So very inclusive again, all things were created through him and then, and for him, and for him. So we have, Christ-centeredness in all things. Oh, but wait a minute, but just make sure you don't have a Christ-centered sermon. Right. <laughs> or don't interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way, even though all things are for him. For him yeah. So Colossians 8, 1.18 also, where it says at the end of verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Mm. And again, with my um, snarkiness, except in our preaching. Right. Make sure Christ isn't preeminent in your preaching which is absolutely ridiculous, but um, it, it is, is you know, what I, we're I, told. If I leave church on a Sunday and what I think is about myself or what I can do or what else would I want to be thinking about except for Christ and how amazing he is and the glories of Christ and his work for us on the cross, what else is there to the people that want to say we can't be doing that? What else is there? What would they have us focus on? Ways to be a better David. I guess. Right? Or something like that. What's fascinating, since you bring that up, Mike, is that I was told, and I have heard time and time again, that if you read the Bible in a Christ-centered way, it's artificial, and uh, so you're not taking the Bible at face value, and that's going to lead to liberalism, hmm. theological liberalism, which is fascinating because in actuality— Theological liberals, if you read Machen and his book, Christianity and Liberalism, it, it was the theological liberals who moved away from Christ-centeredness. Hmm. 
because they no longer believed in the supernatural, right. things like resurrection, things like a God with a decree, uh, who's orchestrating all things leading to Christ and typology. They didn't believe that anymore. And so they had to do something with the Bible because they still wanted their pensions. Mm -hmm. uh, they still wanted to have their congregations and their, their church meetings. So they started saying the Bible's filled with timeless truths. Mm. And they made it all about other things. And they made it all about character studies instead of having it be all about Christ. Mm. So in actuality, the liberals are the ones who moved away from Christ-centeredness, strangely enough. Yeah. Maybe one other one before we move on and wrap things up. Uh, Colossians 3 is fascinating, the way the Apostle Paul reads Genesis and interprets Genesis. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the Apostle Paul is reading Genesis in a Christ-centered way. He's not doctoring it up. He's not changing it. Uh, he's being very straightforward, but he's pointing out what might not be so obvious if we weren't thinking like Christians. Mm. It was there all along, but it might not be so obvious. Yeah. My friend Dave Van Drunen makes an interesting observation about this when he makes the connection to Genesis 3.15. He at first says, you know, this sounds kind of strange that the Apostle Paul does this perhaps, but then he says in light of Genesis 3.15, it's actually not strange at all. He, singular, shall bruise your head. Hmm. So here we are interpreting the Bible with the Bible, hmm. which would sound like what Christians have done because, again, one divine author paying attention to the apostles, paying attention, attention to Jesus. Another place where we could go if we had the time is we could look at the book of Acts. Hmm. Yeah. The apostolic preaching is very Christ-centered. Yes, absolutely. And let's be honest, sometimes the way they use the Old Testament, we might say, it, I'm not sure how they got there, at least at first glance. Sometimes it's super obvious. But I would argue they have great hermeneutical credibility in what they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's look at our final reason for interpreting the Bible like Christians, and that is the prophets. So I just want to use one example here, and that would be Isaiah the prophet, because what we find, fascinatingly enough, is in Isaiah himself, in the book of Isaiah, we find in that book a movement toward Christ-centeredness. Yeah. And so it's not like the Apostle Paul and Isaiah are going to fight in heaven right. because they had different hermeneutics. Right, right. One was Christ-centered, one wasn't. And Isaiah is not going to say, hey, Paul, why did you read me in a Christ-centered way yeah. when that wasn't the authorial intent? Right. Th that's not going to happen because I want to say organically. Right there in Isaiah, in that book itself, we see a movement from Israel type shadow to a person, uh, not a nation, mm. the ultimate faithful son, the ultimate faithful servant, Jesus. Yeah. And so, for example, if we work our way through the book, in Isaiah 41, 8, uh, it says, Israel, my servant. Then chapter 42, verse 1, behold, my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, mm. and refers to him and he. So we move from nation now to nation personified. Yeah. Ah, we're, we're on to something here. Isaiah himself is, is moving toward a person who is going to be the ultimate servant, mm. not the type, not the shadow. Isaiah 44, verse 1, my servant Israel. But then 49, 3, my servant Israel also. 
Then in chapter 52, if we want to go there in verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Hmm. And I don't know any Christian who doesn't think that is looking forward to none other than the incarnate one, Christ the Lord. And then we move to chapter 53 for the slam dunk, as it were. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Yeah, that's awesome. And we know for sure Acts chapter 8 has that referred to as yep, Jesus. As Jesus yep. He is the one, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So what we see there, if we work our way through the book of Isaiah itself, we don't have to read the old in light of the new, though we think you should. <laughs> right. But you don't even have to do that. You can read the old in light of the old yeah. and see that history is moving toward or moving from type and shadow to a personified servant, not a nation the servant who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing to see unfold in Isaiah. What a book. What a gospel-centric kind of book yeah. is what it is. Yeah. So w- once again, we're not finding Jesus in some kind of allegorical, hidden way uh, and imposing that on Isaiah. We see it right there. That's why I'm emphasizing organically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it right there in Isaiah, things moving forward. So we already alluded earlier to some reasons why people might be opposed to Christ-centeredness. Uh, Do you have any others that you might add before we wrap everything up? I might add a couple uh, at the end here, Mike. One would be, I think it's scare tactics. We've we've been warned. Mm. uh, We've been told that you can't be Christ-centered, that you can't read the old in light of the new because it's going to lead to all sorts of bad things. Sure. But I think we need to maybe not be so afraid and actually read the Bible like supernaturalists uh, that we are as Christians Mm. and to see through the whole thing as... Uh, a straw man, uh, as a scare tactic, as illegitimate. So that would be one of the reasons why people would oppose this. Another reason would be because it does affect your ultimate. And by that, what I mean is if you think the nation of Israel is the ultimate, Hmm. then you're not going to read the old in light of the new. Right. But if you think Christ is the ultimate, you're going to read the old in light of the new as well as the new in light of the old. Yeah. But we otherwise you don't like typology because typology is not the substance. Yeah, right. It's too many times people want to make the types the substance, mm-hmm. and that's actually totally backward. Right. I think maybe this comes a little from what we would call biblicism, where if you want to throw out all other examples of interpretation and say, I'm just going to start over and just start in Genesis and try to figure it out all myself— you may be pretty confused in thinking that the types and the shadows are actually the substance. But if you keep reading and if you are super, 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 super smart, you won't come to that conclusion. But most of us aren't super, 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 super smart. So we say, oh, I can learn from other people. And these are types and shadows. These aren't the substance. And we can be reminded as we're reading Leviticus that there is a book called Hebrews. Mm Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I might need to remind you of that or you remind me of that. We're we're helped by other Christians in the Christian community. And so it's okay to be Christ-centered and we'll have Christ as the ultimate, not the types and the shadows as the ultimate. So as we wrap up, maybe we could look at some resources. Earlier we talked about the book uh, by Craig Carter and the other book by Matthew Barrett. Uh, Any other resources you would recommend as we wrap things up? Maybe for everyone, just a, a normal Bible reader, which I hope we're all seeking to be, 
I really like the short articles on hermeneutics that are in the back of the Reformation Study Bible. Yeah. They're super simple to read. Mike Horton has one called Interpreting Scripture by Scripture. Mm -hmm. So he's not a naturalist (laughs) because one divine author, it's okay to do that. I really like that article. There's also another one just called Hermeneutics that is a good introductory uh, little course, if you will, in how to interpret the Bible in a distinctly Christian way. Yeah. Also, Dennis Johnson has some helpful books, one on preaching, which is a little bit more technical, called Him We Proclaim, and then the one that's not so technical called Walking with Jesus Mm. Through His Word. Very accessible, very understandable. He's not a compromising allegorist, Mm -hmm. but he is a supernaturalist reading the Bible as Christian scripture. So I would commend those books. Graham Goldsworthy has a book called Christ-Centered Hermeneutics, which is, again, going to be more on the heady technical side of things, but it has helped me in understanding the post-Enlightenment sort of things. That's great. Well, we'll put all those books in our show notes. And if you're looking for our show notes, you can find those on our website, thepactum.org. Again, that's thepactum.org. Each episode, you can find the show notes, links to some of those resources, so you can get a hold of those for yourself. We're going to wrap it up here. Christ-centered preaching, reading the old in light of the new, the new in light of the old. Reading the Bible like Christians. That's right. Because we're Christians. Amen. See you next time. 